This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Good Sam. How are you? All good. And who are you introducing today? Sam, today I'm introducing Claire Mann, who's an international human rights lawyer based in, of all places, in Rotorua. Kia ora. Claire, thank you for sharing with us today. Kiara Tanako, thank you so much for having me here. Welcome. How was your bubble life? Ah, uh, yeah, bubble life. Well, I live alone. I don't have a partner. I don't have children. Don't have any pets. Uh, and I, um, I've spent a lot of my life working from home as well. So I thought, oh, this is going to be no problem. I know how to do this. I've got this down pat. And then it actually hit me that oh, wow, this is really lonely. Um, and I'm not somebody who often suffers from loneliness. So I found actually, so my lockdown, I was insanely busy, um, very, very busy with lots of work, helping the community and things, and then just a lot, lot more lonely than I expected. Did you get out and get your, get some exercise, get your mandatory walk in, your government-approved <laughs> walk? Well, yes and no. I live opposite a park, so I, I was super lucky that every time it was beautiful, sunny weather, well, not every time, but a lot of the times, I would take a picnic blanket at my laptop and I'd walk across the road and I'd still be within my Wi-Fi zone, but being out <laughs> kind of getting some fresh air and things and kind of feeling like I had this whole park for myself because nobody else was allowed to, but I could walk across the road. And then every day, I think this is what happens to a lot of people when you work from home a lot, you think, oh, I'll, I'll go and get that exercise. And then you kind of realise another week has gone past and you've not actually left the, the small walk from the bedroom to the bathroom to the kitchen to the desk and then back again and that circuit multiple times a day. So, uh, no, I was terrible at getting out and getting exercise. That's pretty embarrassing to admit, isn't it? <laughs> So you are working from home. What work do you do from home? So I'm an international human rights lawyer. And what that means is that um, I work mostly on what's called socioeconomic rights. So the rights to housing, health, education um, and cultural rights. And I do a lot of consulting work. So I run a global consulting firm um, and I work for major clients like United Nations agencies, um, different NGOs, nations like International, and then um, what's called National Human Rights Institutions. So one of the projects I was working on during lockdown was for the New Zealand Human Rights Commission. And I also was during lockdown doing some project work for the American Bar Association, helping a group of feminist lawyers in Eastern Europe with some of their issues. Um, so yeah, my clients are really quite interesting and varied. It's usually big projects, but then I also do quite a lot of work one-on-one -on -one with individual people, not so much as a kind of lawyer helping them to bring cases um, because uh, there are organisations that, that do that, but rather I help 
other human rights lawyers and other people in the, the international politics, affairs, aid and development world to um, do their jobs better, help them to figure out their careers and help them to, to get their leadership up to scratch and to help make sure that we're supporting our community to be the, the best kind of advocates that they can be. So I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one Zoom calls. So I already spent a lot of time on Zoom. Of course, during lockdown, you know, that time on Zoom went three times more than what I was used to. Um, and I already spent a lot of my time as done with clients in almost every continent of the world. So I don't yet have any clients in Antarctica, but if anyone knows, I'd be looking for them. But, um, yeah, so because I've got this kind of one-on-one um, -on -one interaction with people all over the world, I work all sorts of weird hours. So often my working time is New Zealand late nights or super early mornings. So um, some of my clients during lockdown were people stuck uh, in quarantine in Italy. So, you know, during the months and months, and I'm still talking to some of them, right from well before we went into lockdown until well after, every week that I'm talking to them, they're there in the same room. And I know they've only left that room for one hour since I last spoke to them. And, you know, you think about what happens in your life during that time, even during lockdown in New Zealand, it felt really weird to be talking to people in all these situations. I've got some clients in South Sudan, um, so in Juba and, you know, living in shipping containers in the middle of, of war zones and things like that. So this little kind of insight through video into the, the lockdown lives of people all over the world made me super grateful to be living where I am. Let's go to the first of your music selections. Let's have Jess Chambers and the Firefly Orchestra with Ireland. Why this one? This one is my part of my connection to home. So I've lived most of my life as a migrant in foreign countries. And whenever I hear this song, um, I usually cry. And it makes me feel like this is the reminder of why New Zealand is, is home for me. Um, I first read about Jess Chambers in the New Zealand Herald. I was um, here as I, I, before I moved back home. I, I came every year sitting down at the breakfast table, reading the Herald and reading the music selection. Thought, oh, that sounds like something good. I'll try that out. And then every time that I come here, I just hear the song over and over again. And so to me, it's just that, that idea of this is some of, encapsulates some of what I love about being a New Zealander.
start of lockdown i think it was the secretary of education talking about access to laptops for disadvantaged kids was being questioned by the media and responded that a pandemic doesn't create inequity it just reveals them is that something which you're experiencing absolutely i mean inequity in our societies whether it's uh, here in rotorua here in new zealand or all around the world um always exists and a lot of the time Everyday people don't notice it, um, but it, it's there. And one of the things that the pandemic has definitely done is brought to our eyes and our attention for those who may not have previously been aware that, that it's there. And it's exacerbated and highlighted some of those instances, like, for example, education, where if we don't have access to a warm and safe 
home to live in and a, um, uh, a computer to, to do the work on or a desk to sit at or internet, then how can we be expected to do online learning? Um, so those kind of things, I think that it's um it's definitely made some of those things worse, but it's also just brought it to light. And I say this a lot when it comes to homelessness issues and things like that as well. These things exist, but when um, communities decide to be more visible, we see it more and therefore we think it's a bigger issue. It's always there. One of the things that the pandemic has done is shown that we can fix things. One of the things that we've, if not fixing, have, have addressed is homelessness. Do you think it's going to make it more challenging for people, politicians in the future, perhaps to to not do things? Because we can turn around and say, well, look, remember in 2020, you actually did the stuff. Yeah, even things like um, coalescing, uh, you know, as Jacinda says always, that the team of five million to kind of come together around a, a co-puppet together, a project that we all say, yeah, we're committed to doing this. I, I do think that it was a great example of showing to us what happens when we work together as a community, when we have the, the political will, the economic ability and the community widespread desire to do something about it. That's when we can really create change. Now, I think we had some pretty unique situations that um, sometimes when we have times of emergency, we're okay with letting go of some of the personal freedoms or rights or where we trust that we need to curtail those to a certain degree because of the situation. And I don't encourage or want us to think like we should be doing that all the time, but it absolutely is something we need to do in, in particular um, periods of time um, to a certain extent with the right safeguards in place, etc. And so in that sense, yeah, we can fix problems and solve problems. I think one of the dangers of saying, or using an emergency style situation as an example of how and why we can fix problems always is we don't always have that external force of the emergency pushing us into a more obvious solution. So there's more scope for lots of differences of opinion about how we do things or different ideologies and values that get brought into the discussion. So what do you think we can learn from how we've responded for the those bigger, longer-term questions, the sorts of things you deal with, the social justice questions, or even often to climate change and so on? Mm. I think one thing we can learn absolutely is that if we have the will and the determination to do it, it absolutely can be done. And that a lot of our, our excuses that we have for why we can't do things are just that, they're excuses. And that doesn't mean they're not valid. You know, the excuse of why I didn't get more exercise during lockdown was, you know, it, it, it's a reality. We need to, to accept it. And we also kind of need to be like, well, that's because it just wasn't a big priority for me. So instead of pretending or thinking that all these things are really important and we just need to get better at working on them, I think sometimes we need to take a good hard look at ourselves and acknowledge we're not fixing a problem because we're not actually prioritising it properly. So that need to prioritise things, to really seriously say this is something that we're committed to working on. Um, and the other thing I think that we can learn from the lockdown experience is that it takes a village. That you know, It's a, a trite thing to say, but it's that ridiculous idea that actually works, that we need to come together as individuals to build community. You know, We can't look at politicians or decision makers and say, why aren't they fixing things? Because I have the power to contribute to that myself as an individual. I made, um, during lockdown, because of some of the, the volunteer work I was doing, I called um, over a 1,000 uh, households in my town to check in on people. And overwhelmingly, people were getting help and support, whether it was shopping or physical help or just that kind of um, addressing loneliness, phone chats, support, psychological help. 
they were getting it from their neighbours and from their community members. A lot of people were getting it from their whanau and from their extended family, but the reality was the vast majority of people I spoke to, they were checking in on their neighbours or their neighbours were checking in on them. That sense of just pure basic community was what got us through. It's interesting how it's almost perverse that the thing that we couldn't do was be close to people in community, but it made our sense of community stronger. Exactly. I think those dichotomies are really interesting, right? Because I absolutely felt busier than I ever had been in terms of talking to people. Like I spent more hours on the phone and on Zoom calls and, and engaging with people than I had in ages. But yet I still felt this overwhelming loneliness from the lack of touch and the ability to physically be near people. But I absolutely felt more connected to my community and to my friends and to the people around me. Part of that is because we were all having a shared experience, right? We had this commonality that that bound us together and that drew us together. Um, And and we use that often in advocacy in in all sorts of different issues, that idea of uh, uniting against a common enemy. And, you know, in this instance, the enemy was of fear and the, the virus and the, the the lack of wanting to stay in lockdown forever and all that kind of thing. But I think that that's something that we can take away from it as well. It can be really uniting is to, to have something to be working together towards. That's really important. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kotaua hau. I hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that whatever is happening around you, and wherever you are, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very nourishing, very sustaining, very inspiring, and is illuminating for you more and more every moment. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here making things better every day. Thank you. So I've had a wonderful day. I'm so grateful to have more time with you. Thank you so much. And for me, today has really illuminated all these journeys that we're all on and how, of course, they coincide with each other, both internally and externally constantly as we interact on different levels and for many of us as we grow up we are culturally presented with many examples in our mythology and stories and social conditioning and our popular culture narratives all around these heroic journeys and these journeys into the unknown and these journeys dealing with challenges, overcoming challenges, triumphing, testing different approaches, dealing with failure, facing our fears, overcoming unhelpful behaviours, all of these, all of these journeys that are exemplified to us culturally. And of course, I feel that all of us move through this heroic arc and collectively we have just moved through a very heroic arc as a dream team of 5 million from lockdown, level 4, level 3, level 2, and now we're back. We've conquered this global pandemic in Aotearoa, New Zealand for now, and here we are in level 1. And so collectively we went on a heroic journey. But for all of us, I feel that throughout our lives we 
undertake these heroic journeys, both internally and externally. And often it's the external journeys, of course, that we're more consciously aware of and are more consciously recognised collectively and celebrated collectively. But actually, the internal heroic journeys that we're undertaking constantly are also really important to reflect upon and celebrate and recognize and often it's these internal heroic journeys that make the external heroic journeys possible and I can certainly attest to this in my own existence that without many heroic internal adventures I would not be able to have the external heroic journeys that I'm enjoying venturing forth upon now and indeed have in the past as well. So I'm so grateful for all the learning that's taken place in my life. So particularly at this time, as we are emerging from that collective heroic journey back to our independent heroic internal and external journeys, I think it's very important that we recognise that everybody is undertaking this process of acknowledging challenges and finding strategies to overcome them and thereby grow and learn from this process. And that when we meet people, when we're interacting with people, it may be that there are vast internal landscapes that they're traversing that we are not aware of. And maybe they're not aware of fully consciously either. And it's important that we are as kind and supportive to ourselves and each other so that these internal heroic journeys may go as well as possible and make many external heroic journeys both collectively and individually go really well too and I look forward to talking to you tomorrow thanks so much Kakiti. you're dealing with people all over the world are you getting a mm. sense that they're looking at us not just from a how we've responded on a sort of a technical level, but at a bigger picture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in um, a deepening and a, a heightening of that admiration that already existed. Now, one of the fascinating things, so I, I moved back home permanently to Rotorua about two years ago. And um, up until then, I've been living and working in the international community for most of my life. And everybody has always respected New Zealand on so many issues. Not on absolutely everything, not on some of our Indigenous issues, history, but, but certainly in, in modern times, since um, the Jacinda came into power, so many people internationally have just been looking at New Zealand saying that's an example of the kind of values and attitudes that, that we appreciate and that we would like to see in leadership and in a country and in a society. And since lockdown um, and, and our New Zealand response, I've had that repeated back to me so many times. And to me, it's always really interesting to see just how much within New Zealand, we are so critical of ourselves and each other, yet internationally we are absolutely leading the world, not just in our technical COVID response, but in, like, for me, it keeps coming back to that idea of values, that values-led, values-based response. You know, Jacinda calls it kindness. For me, I call it human rights. It's a, at the heart of the human rights project is this concept of human dignity, and that is being translated by our current government into ideas around kindness and well-being and things and for me that that's um a, a really admirable approach and it's something that I see lots of people envying you know I've had lots of people you know friends joking about how 
can I can I marry you? Can, is that the way that I get there? How the hell do I move to New Zealand? And I've got in my professional capacity, lots of people you know, writing with immigration requests and things. We absolutely are being really well regarded on the world stage as a country that is um, doing it right technically, politically, and from that community-led values base. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hey there, bubble people. How's it going? Hope you're having a fantastic, amazing, stimulating, and maybe even um, productive kind of a day today. Yeah, productive is always good, isn't it? I know I always feel good when I get to the end of a day and I feel like I've actually achieved some of the things that I set out to do. (sighs) Sometimes I have even a list that I check off and... Yeah, there's something really lovely about checking off your list uh, over the course of a day and then looking at it and thinking, I, I actually did do stuff. Sometimes it's quite helpful just to have that to remind ourselves that we have actually done something today. Hmm, so hope your day is going uh, productively. Maybe you have a checklist that you're checking off as I speak right now. Uh, so I wanted to just have a quick chat today and thought I... Um, We'll talk about how we are keeping things local at the moment. And obviously on the back of lockdown and uh, the fact that our borders are closed, effectively, and things are a bit different, we're not getting that sort of tourist injection of uh, cash, of people, of uh, sort of, I guess, stimulating the industries that have been around providing for tourists. Um, How do we sort of, how do we keep it local? And I know there's been a lot of, a lot of press about this there's been a lot of talk about how we can do this and it's a really it's a really cool idea because I know for myself I've always thought that um, you know the first sort of port of call on any kind of um, community should be caring for the community so (laughs) so if we talk about that in terms of um, our city or our our country then really it makes a lot of sense that whatever we're doing in our, and let's keep it local, literally, <laughs> since that's the theme of today. Um, if we if we keep it in Dunedin and we say, what can we do right here that actually serves our our local community? Then it's about you know what kind of food do we produce, what kind of um, items do we make, what kind of uh, clothes maybe or design or um, business do we do we have right here that's actually existing for the purpose of serving people in Dunedin not not to attract people from overseas to come and spend their money here but actually how do we serve people's needs right here so what is it about Dunedin that we that we love that we um, need things for I mean gosh the weather let's just let's just start with the weather it's it's a it's a mixed bag here in Dunedin so you know if there's people that are providing services that actually help us navigate the weather, so whether that's kind of weather gear, uh, practical raincoats, maybe clothes that can double as sort of really gorgeous looking styly pieces, but also protect us from the rain. These are just some of the ideas that could be locally sort of driven. Anyway, I want you to go away and have a think about that. And I will leave you on that note because um, I I will come back to you. We will talk again. I hope you have a great day. Take care. What got you into this sort of work? Is it a, a vis- some sort of vision for a better world? Yeah, absolutely. And I sometimes, 
I, I, I've spent my whole life trying to fight feeling embarrassed about saying, I grew up wanting to change the world. And that's actually what I do. It's it's what I still do. And I'm, I'm now proud of it. But in some circles, it is something that you're, you're supposed to be embarrassed about or um, ashamed of thinking that that's something you do. But I think that's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I I do think that, that I and so many other individuals can change the world. That's not to say that the world 100% needs changing. There are a lot of good things. So really, I suppose that the more adult version of that is I want to work to help to build out the best in people and in our communities and our societies and to um, work towards helping everybody overcome those inequalities and the, the disadvantages that, that we have. Um, now, that's not necessarily kind of, I think, the other aspect to when I, I was young and wanting to think about human rights as a career and getting into this kind of thing, that idea of helping other people and being a voice for the voiceless was really powerful. Now that I'm older, I realise that also is ridiculous. Um, the whole idea of being a voice for the voiceless, I find patronising and, and just plain wrong these days because I think the reality is that people have a voice. We just, um, we as in being the, the privileged class or, or race or whatever, don't sit back and listen to it often enough. So so my co-papa now is about getting out of the way and like building those platforms to push other people forward so that, you know, we wouldn't need um, the people with white um, saviour complex standing forward saying, I want to be a voice for the voiceless, if we're actually stepping back and letting those who don't get enough say in their own destiny have their own voice. Do you think we're getting there? Absolutely. I think that if you look at the history of the human rights movement, which is a, still a relatively new and young movement, um, you know, we've gone through those phases of having the Universal Declaration on Human Rights being adopted in 1948 and all the discussions in the, the 50s and 60s around civil and political rights versus economic, social and cultural rights. You know, do we have um, the, the more US model of civil rights movement versus uh, um, what has been perceived to be a more socialist model of, of economic rights and things? Um, we've progressed a long way since then. And when we then look at things like the, the women's movement and the feminist movement, um, LGBTI issues, all of those kind of things, every um, group that, that we've kind of traditionally called victims or marginalised or, or kind of um, uh, the, the more recent terminology in human rights terms for want of anything at all better is, is groups at risk, any of those kind of things that we look at, life has improved on the whole. That doesn't mean that life for everybody has improved and we certainly still have a long way to go. But I think you know, part of the idea of wokeness and why people are pushing back against that PC culture kind of thing so much is because we are making progress. You know, people feel that the hurt and the offence and the, the um, uh, reluctance to, to, to move along if they see that there is actually a journey that people are progressing along. Do you think that, um, it, but there's, there's, as you talk about, there's a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. And is it that there are fundamental differences in how people approach the values or the freedoms? We had somebody talk to us about how it's the, the New Zealand approach is, is we've got these freedoms to do something, whereas in the States it's free, they see it as a freedom from that they're somehow their freedom is to be isolated or something. Yeah, it's that that kind of um, libertarian idea of of my my freedom is my ability to do whatever the hell I want versus um, a, a desire to to build communities together. I think you you can make those arguments that like that, but I think it you know 
everything we're doing is simplifying things. Um, I do think that there's an element there of, of saying, well, in, in my mind and, and from a human rights theory perspective, it's not about one or the other. It's not about and or. Um, and it's not just about saying that, that one set of rights is more important than the other. And by doing away with things, you're, you're, you're kind of sacrificing things. So we see in the U.S., um, the really interesting thing from my perspective is the use of rights language. Now, the co-opting of the, the the lexicon of human rights to claim things which are not actually human rights. So that idea of saying, ah, oh, it's a, a violation of my human rights to force me to wear a mask and things like that. I know that the human rights movement is succeeding because others are using the language of human rights to rally against what the human rights movement is all about. Of all of the things that we have seen over the last weeks, five months, what do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick? <laughs> Besides from a desire by the entire world and a growing number of Americans to get rid of Trump as president, which <laughs> 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 I hope would stick. Um, I think I hope that that, that brief period, you know, relatively brief period we had of saying, hey, let's rethink things. Let's stop take, let's take this time out to press the reset rather than press pause. So, you know, we had the option of pressing pause and then coming back to life as normal or re-examining things and saying, and I think this happens to all of us at an individual level, but it needs to happen more at a community level and as a society-wide level of saying, I don't like the way that we're doing things in the past or I like these aspects, but these aspects were problematic. So how do we build a better future that doesn't just revolve around restart, rebuild, but rather that revolves around saying, hey, we had this gift, not a gift for everybody. It wasn't, you know, a, a spiritual bypassing silver lining for everybody. But for many of us, it was a chance to rethink and say, we have a, um, a proactive ability to change our future. So how do we do that? Does that change the concept of human rights, that, that moving to a regeneration rather than a recovery? Does it change our concepts of human rights or is human rights, is that, is that just human rights proper? I think it's, it's human rights proper and it always has been human rights. I think that um, a lot of people think that human rights is somehow like opposed to, or, or, or somehow is, is different to fighting for the environment and fighting for sustainability and all of that kind of thing. But actually, it's all one and the same. It's all so deeply what how the, the phrases we use in, inter, in human rights is called interrelatedness, interconnected and interdependent. We can't separate one from the other. So we can't fight for one right and not also be fighting for those other rights. So that's a bit where um, I come to people who, who claim to be human rights defenders, but who have very big problems fighting for um, rights and equality for people of different sexual orientations or gender identities, or um, who don't see themselves as feminist and, and fighting for equality, but think they're fighting for human rights. And I think some of that comes back to that co-opting of the language that I was talking about. The, the fight for the environment and for sustainability and to make sure that our communities and our planet is one we can keep living on, that is human rights. You talked about how it comes down to socioeconomic rights. I'm a, a fan of the, the term socioecological. Do you think mm. that the, has that got legs in a, in a human rights perspective? Yep, 
absolutely. With my pure kind of black letter human rights lawyer hat on, I would say there's a really specific reason why it's called socioeconomic rights and ecological rights are actually included in that. And there is um, a lot of jurisprudence and things around how ecological rights, I actually wouldn't put them into the socioeconomic or socioecological rights category because that's actually doing ecological rights a disservice because socioeconomic rights is a sub part of human rights. You've got civil and political rights and socioeconomic and cultural rights. And they're both, they're, they're kind of two um, branches of human rights. And ecological rights are about the, the tree trunk. They're not just about one or, or the other of the branches. Um, so, yes, absolutely. In human rights these days, one of the, the reports that I've just been writing, I've been working um, a little bit on the issue of um, both a, a just, just recovery and a just transition. So this idea that I, it can't just be recovery as normal, build back as normal, and our transition to a, an ecologically um, sound and sustainable future, um, both of these things need to have this idea of, of justness in it. And that's it's a little bit different to justice because we know that that's somewhat problematic, but it's this idea of we can't push for a recovery or a transition to a sustainable future without being really aware of who we're leaving behind in that process. We need to bring everybody along for that journey um, and to, to continue the work that we do around human rights as part of that journey rather than seeing it as separate things. Is that um, at the core of those? Is it that the, the opposite of what we want it, it is described by exploitation, abuse, extraction? Is, is, is it the, the logic that those, those things are the same in whatever the field is? Yeah, I think so. You know, the, the, the things that you speak about, which are, are very familiar and, and used terms when you think about environmental issues, right, exploitation, um, uh, et cetera, that's absolutely what the Human Rights Project is about, is making sure that we are combating those things and combating them in all sorts of different ways and making sure that in the same way as the environmental movement, there's a lot of overlaps here and that you start with awareness raising and, and um, sharing information and education and you have various levels and, and degrees of advocacy and different ways that you do it, that you need to incorporate policy change, you need to incorporate legal change, but you need to incorporate changes in, in the hearts and minds of people as well in order to create that, that long-term change that you want no matter what the issue is. Thinking about the growth of those sorts of movements, it seems appropriate to play Paul Kelly and Kev Carmody's From Little Things, Big Things Grow. I chose this song because, in fact, um, the, the lyrics from this song are, are what sit above my desk. Um, that I pulled out and, and put these there when I first started working on my PhD as that, that grounding, that touchstone reminder of why I'm doing it, but also how to keep coming back to the essential message. The idea that, that any movement, human rights, environment, whatever, it comes from this idea of little bits of action, little actions that we all take from the, those little things. It's, it's how the big movements and societal change happens. But for me also, as you can tell by my accent, um, I have <clears throat> two homes, two, two countries of origin, New Zealand and Australia, and the Indigenous rights movement was one of the kind of early exposures that I had to, to the concept of human rights. Um, growing up and going to school in both New Zealand and Australia, I was always really struck by the difference in the way that we deal with the Indigenous rights movement in each country. And so um, the the... the the songs that are spoken about by, by Kev Carmody is one of Australia's um, leading Indigenous musicians and by Paul Kelly, who's always been a really strong ally and advocate for Indigenous rights, were always really important to me. 
And it also is that that reminder, you know, throughout my life working internationally and things um, of one of the things I love about both the, uh, of my countries, um, that idea that everybody's really connected, that there's no, you know, nobody's more important or more special than the other. Um, Paul Kelly's sister was my high school principal. So that idea that we all know each other, just a few steps removed, right? And that's why we do the work. That's why we work, because we're not doing it for some kind of unknown other people. We're doing it for each other. Gather round people, I'll tell you a story, an eight-year-long story of power and pride. British Lord Vesti and Vincent Lignari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesti was fat with money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, he spoke very little He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow The Ringy were working for nothing but rations But once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily the pressure got tighter and tighter The Ringy decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags and started off walking At Water Creek they set themselves down Now it don't sound like much But it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead And then in the town From little things Big things grow From little things Big things grow Vesting man said I'll double your wages Eighteen quid a week You'll have in your hand Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages We're sitting right here till we get our land Vesting man roared, vesting man thundered You don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow Vincent said, if we fall, others are rising From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Vincent Lignari boarded an airplane Landed in Sydney, big city of lights And daily he went round softly speaking his story To all kinds of men from all walks of life And Vincent sat down with big politicians This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state Let us sort it out while your people are hungry Vincent said, no thanks, we know how to wait From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Then Vincent Lingari 
Returned in an airplane Back to his country Once more to sit down And he told his people Let the stars keep on turning We have friends in the south In the cities and towns Eight years went by Eight long years of waiting To one day a tall stranger Appeared in the land And he came with lawyers And he came with great ceremony And through Vincent's fingers Poured a handful of sand From little things Big things grow From little things Big things grow was a story of Vincent Lignari, but this is a story of something much more, how power and privilege can unmove a people who know where they stand, stand in the law, from little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. 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 Some questions to end with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Coming home to New Zealand, making that decision to um, reconnect with my whenua, with my um, family in various ways, and with myself and who I am and my standing in the world. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you're on our team. What's the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Oh, my superpower is transformational courage. Um, It's the courage to transform my own life and the courage to inspire and support and nurture and nourish others in transforming their lives and their worlds and that whole idea of changing the world, changing our own worlds, changing the world. That's a good one. I like that one. The trick, of course, of of these, the trick of these superpowers is that they're not, they're not magic. They don't involve flying. They don't involve (laughs) laser eyes. These are things that, that people can can do normal people can do is that something you've always had or is is that something that's developed 
you know, I came to this, I've actually done a lot of work on thinking about this concept of what is your superpower. And that's why I was quick to answer transformational courage, because I've done a lot of thinking about this, about like, what to, what is something that's been a consistent theme throughout my life? What even before I was aware of it and kind of self-aware enough to think about it, what guided my decisions and what led me to, to you know, do the things I did in my life. Now, I moved away from my hometown and my family when I was 17 years old. Um, I moved overseas without knowing a single person in the city that I was moving to. I've left lucrative jobs for short-term unpaid gigs. Um, and, you know, some a lot of the decisions I've made along the way, a lot of people look at and go, wow, what the hell were you doing? That looks really dumb. That looks like a stupid thing to do. And for me, I took me a long time to identify it or to own it. And I don't necessarily feel like I, um, I feel immodest talking about being courageous because it's not something that you want to kind of give yourself as a moniker. But I know that this is something that other people come to me for. They come to me for advice and ideas about how they can be more courageous in their life. So the, the concept of, of courage is something that I think I've been forced into due to life circumstances and things. I've had some things happen to me in my life where I've had no option but to just move through it. And I think that teaches you courage. And then I'm a natural teacher, something I love doing. So if if I feel like I'm kind of getting the hang of a task, my first instinct is to try and teach it to other people. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Absolutely, 100% proud of it. What does that mean to you? It means um, standing up for for people, for rights, for issues, for values, for what you believe. Um, one of the songs that, that first came to mind when, when I was asked what are the songs that I wanted to give you was um, Bob Marley's um, Stand Up For Your Rights because for me whenever I think about that music is a really inspiring thing for me when it comes to activism, it is just as simple as that concept of standing up. So I was at a party last night for a friend and um, one of their, their uncles was saying something and I said to him, not rudely but, but certainly you know, bluntly, that's racist. Um, and so I, I called it out straight away. That to me is what being an activist is. It's about the little everyday conversations and it's the big picture being involved in, in activist movements that are seeking to change our world. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Hi, the desire to get back to bed for a nap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what motivates me? Um, I think yeah, I think this idea, it probably comes from my very early days of having a religious upbringing, which I certainly since have, have left far behind the religious idea, but that idea of I feel a responsibility, that I'm in a position of privilege. I have, as some of my family would think, I've been overeducated in my life. Um, I've had um, some amazing opportunities. I've also had some of those, you know, another learning opportunity where life throws something pretty tough and awful at you and you've got to just run with it. Um, a lot of those, which um, certainly would, wouldn't classify me as privileged, but, but mean I've had the opportunity to learn from them. So I think it's my responsibility to take those lessons and learnings and those accesses to the halls of power and to education and knowledge and to use them for the benefit of not just me personally, but for everybody around me and for my whole community. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And these days, um, what gets me out of bed in the morning is is the support and encouragement and belief that others have in me and in my abilities. And I've been really lucky to have had some opportunities in my life where I've been, you know, labelled as a upcoming world leader and all that kind of thing, which I cringe to say and is embarrassing to think about. But that puts a lot of feeling of responsibility and about living up to expectations. And I often think a lot about the concept of, of ancestors and how, you know, the people who've gone before us 
they've sacrificed so much and done so much to make sure that we can make the most out of our lives. So I'm standing on their shoulders and I have them pushing me forward and they get me out of bed every morning saying, you can do it. We believe in you. What's the role of optimism, do you think? I mean, you, you're talking about people that have been in some sort of isolation for, for months and months. Presumably you have to be positive, but you also have to be real. You don't want to be deluded about that. How do you manage that? I was talking to a client the other day whose um, husband is, is imprisoned and we were discussing a lot the concept of stoicism and the idea of how do you get through long periods and a lot of the, the human rights defenders that I work with and people that I know have been in prison for long periods of time um, in detention um, where they, they don't know uh, if they're ever going to get out. They don't know how long it's going to last. They don't know if anybody in the outside world knows about them or is thinking about them or is fighting for them. So how do you maintain your sanity and, and your sense of optimism or, or belief that you can get through this? Um, I do think optimism is absolutely vital, but but I don't know if it's just about kind of the, the positive mindset type thing. I think that um, that's sometimes a bit dangerous for us as well. I think the belief and the hope that there is a better future and that you're working towards something is really important. Um, and I also think it's important, um, particularly in that, that idea of when we're, we're in lockdown or in these situations, it's about finding those everyday moments of joy and also moments of achievement or completion or like, I'm getting through this or um, small goals or things that you can kind of either tick off or think, okay, tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to do X and that's enough to get me through the day. What challenge are you looking forward to in the the next year or so? So my big challenge that's ahead of me is I'm hoping to join Jacinda Ardern's government to continue building a better New Zealand for all of us. I'm running for election in the central government elections. Um, and so that's my challenge is to, um, uh, to, to fight to be elected to make that contribution and then also to, to figure out um, if that happens or if it doesn't happen, whichever, what that contribution looks like and how best I can take my skills and experience and use them for our community. Good luck with you for, with, for that one. Finally, do you have any advice for our listeners? Wow, you stumped me with that one. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Since a big, you know, actually every single aspect of my job is about giving other people advice. <laughs> what advice do I have? I think the best advice that I could ever give to anybody is to spend the time, particularly with this opportunity we have during lockdown, is to spend the time getting to know yourself, figure out who you are, where you stand, what your values are, what your voice is. Our voice looks different for each person. How we use our voice is different for everybody. And I think that the most successful people and the happiest people I know are those who are the most self-aware and who are the most um, understanding about how to use their own voice in their own lives. Thank you very much for that. Moira? Um, I can't improve on that. <laughs> I can't even add anything to that except to say that's blooming good advice. And thank you for enabling people to be able to use their voices because without people like you doing what you do, sometimes people have no option. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Mara. One of the really interesting things that I've seen and learnt and kind of been told is that, um, you know, that whole idea of we're not speaking as a voice for the voiceless, but a lot of the time we are role modelling and we're giving permission to other people. So I'm getting used to in my life being that annoying person that just speaks up when nobody else will because I know that afterwards so many other people come up to me and say, thank you so much for speaking. I didn't feel like I should or could or wanted to, but you did it for me. So that's really important to just keep doing no matter how embarrassing or annoying it is. Get up, stand up. 
You've been listening to Blowing Bubble, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Manansoy's Bay Dunedin with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani and Claire Mann in Rotorua. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.